What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Central Virginia Sport Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jay DeMeo, and today I'm really fired up to, to have on one of our fantastic presenters from this summer's seminar in Richmond, Virginia, July 15th and 16th, Coach Al Vermeil. Coach, how you doing, man? I, I'm doing fine at 76. You know, I, I'm doing great. I worked out yesterday. I I'm up to almost 300 yards of sprinting. My hamstring's getting better, you know. And then I got to I got my weight workout in, and uh, you know, so forth. And uh, you know, at, at my age, you know, if you can still do some things, you, you're fortunate. And one of the things before we start, I would recommend to all young strength coaches: never lose your ability to do an overhead squat. And when you're sitting in the bottom. With that bar over, stick overhead, you don't have to even have a bar. Do at least five presses because that will keep you mobile. Everybody looks for mobility test. If you can overhead squat and press behind your head and stay in that great position, what what joint or what what restrictions do you have? I don't think you've got ankle mobility. You've got good mobility through your quads. Obviously, your knees are healthy. Your hip mobility is good. Your thoracic extension's got to be good. And your shoulder mobility is good, good. And if you want to talk a little about testing later, I'll get into a little more deeper. But that's the one thing I'd recommend you maintain. I'd maintain the ability to sprint. Now, that doesn't mean go out and run 100 meters or 100-yard sprint. I, what I do is Charlie Francis is, and Derek Hansen has a, has written it up about their hamstring rehab. I run 10 times 10. And when I could do 200 yards of that without any problems, and then I go 10 times 10, I rest three to five minutes and do some leg swings. Then I go seven times 15 rest. And now I'm up to five times 20 yards. And if you think about it, what do you see when people age? They, lose the ability to create ground reaction forces. They lose, they get in and out of a chair, they can't. So the overhead squat takes care of the mobility. The sprinting takes care of that. This ground reaction, plus all the mobility you have to have, now I'm warmed up to lift. So I think sometimes we forget the basic, basic things that are so normal. I mean, in ancient times, if man didn't sprint fast, he either got eaten by the animals or he didn't capture the, get, get the game or animal for food. So I think sometimes we, we really get overly fancy and forget. So if you can sprint most of your life and you're going to overhead squat, your, your lifting part will take care of itself. You know, everybody's worried about cardiovascular. You know, and I get a boot of these people running marathons. The original story, if I understand it in Greek mythology or ancient Greece, he ran to marathon to warn of the Persians coming. I think that's the story. He gave the warning, then he dropped dead. Now, why would you copy something from that? I think that's, you know, uh, I get a boot of all these people. They're out there pounding the pavement. You know, I, I would go out in, when I was younger much younger and I was at Moreau and Casserobly High School and even the Niners and I'd do some distance work. I really, and I didn't run more than maybe 20 minutes, but I regret doing that because you ran a lot of times on the street. And what I recommend to people to do, 
If you want to maintain cardio, the two simplest ways to do is follow Charlie Hans Francis's tempo program, or if to make it simple, start at one corner of the end zone, run to the corner uh, of the goal line, walk across the goal line, run to the other corner, maybe do six of those and then or four to six and then walk a 150, then repeat it, do maybe minimum of 1200, maximum of 1214, uh, excuse me, talk slowly, Al, you're talking like 2400 yards. So 12 to 2400 are the other thing that's really good for your athletes to do. And we did that one with athletes. I followed Charlie's tempo program. But what we did is we would throw the medicine ball 20 times off the wall in the gym and then run the length of the court and throw it 20. And we do sets of tens with about three minutes rest in between and build up to about 800. And I'll tell you that medicine ball and that little run, you'll be in plenty of good enough shape and you'll get it done in depending how long it shouldn't take you more than 20, probably if you do 830 minutes. And you tell your big guys like offensive linemen, we're not going to run any further than 30 yards, but it gets it done. So, uh, and now if you're at home as an adult, you can use your bicycle. If you have an elliptical, you can use your treadmill and you don't have to go hard on them. You just maybe go for, if I'm on the treadmill or bike, I'd go depending on, on the treadmill, I might walk fast for 30 uh, for a minute. On, our, on the bike, you know, for a minute and alternate. And if the med ball doesn't bounce a lot, that they have the dead ones, you maybe only do 10 throws because it's a lot harder. The throws aren't maximal and they're any kind you want. Anyway, I know we haven't gotten started, but those are, you know, you ask what people do. Uh, last, last week, I went down to uh, a place here in Cincinnati. It's called Black Sheep. And I... Uh, went in there and I uh, did my med ball tempo. And uh, of course the run in between to get, I don't know if it's a run or a good crawl, a fast crawl anymore. <laughs> and it's like, I, I, when I do my sprint workout at another place, I, God, I want to give the young man credit. I can never think of his, of the thing, but it's, he has a nice pad that's real thick. It was part of the turf that came out of the old Indianapolis Colts facility and uh, it, that works really good and I feel like I'm running real fast but I'm sure if I had someone video it it looked like I'd be running in in in, uh, in quicksand or something I'd be so slow anyway but if you want to stay young and you want to stay where you move well you do those things and you know if just think about it as we age if once you lose the ability to do let's say you lose the ability to squat well that eliminates a lot of exercises because now it's harder to get down and do a clean pull or deadlift or even use the trap bar and now if you lose all that mobility and everybody's walking around like how you doing today oh i'm fine you're wearing a nice pair of shoes because they can't straighten up anymore but you keep that overhead squat and i'm not saying even with weight i'm not saying that just the stick you know, so I'm sure you've got some coaches or listeners out there. Now, if you haven't sprinted in your lifetime, now you got to be real careful starting for anybody and especially ex-athletes because they'll get out there. Well, I ran 40 and 
and three nine, you know, they exaggerate. And uh, so you got to gradually, I would start with gradual, easy accelerations. And, you know, first, can you even squat anymore? An excellent way to improve your squat is put a medicine ball behind your back on a wall and then squat down. And you, you, can, you can use those slant boards. So you put the ball right behind your back down low and you just squat down. And then I'll do that with an overhead squat. And so anyway, I, I know that wasn't part of what you were looking for, but I just, it's something I like to pass on. I wish I would have done, never stop sprinting. That's a big, big, I, you know, cause I, I sprinted a lot when I was a young athlete a long time ago. So. I love it. Anyway. Coach. I do. I love it. And I want to, want to run all the way back. So that overhead squat warm up evaluation that you're talking about, how long have you been utilizing that and kind of what was the, what was the premise or start of it? Well, we started doing, we, when I was with the bulls, we started testing squats because we would get a player in and they couldn't squat. And I would do the jump test and the speed test. So we added the squat and then we added the overhead squat. It was amazing. We would get players from big universities who could buy a strength coach for each player and they couldn't squat. And what the tall guys you get, you get someone that are cut real high, short-waisted, and that's really a little, when they're out of proportion like that, they're really difficult, you know, and you're not going to get everybody to, you know, we, I'm not saying we got everybody to do everything perfect and over, I'm not going to make any of those exaggerated claims, but it's what, that's really where that came in. And, uh, and, you know, coming from football, everybody, you know, they get down and in the day I played and and after I coached, uh, they were still hitting Crowther sleds and stuff, even at the 49ers. So most all the guys could get in a squat. They had come from football. They'd squatted in their high school programs and their college program. But when you went to basketball in 1985, not everybody was training and there was still an emphasis, you know, there were still people using machines and, you know, and, you know, you can't substitute, there's no machine that substitutes for a barbell or dumbbell that just doesn't, you know, because now, now you're locked into a position and you don't get the multi-joint movement that, you know, and you don't have to stabilize the motion. And I, so anyway, that's how we got into doing the squat, using the squat as one of our basic tests. And if and people say, and we're talking about testing, if you can overhead squat, stick and you can press from the bottom you know now we tested their hamstrings and all that but if you can do that you've got all the mobility and flexibility you need so if you're a coach dealing with a lot of kids that's the best way to test it now i've already mentioned well what if they can't do it well first you test if they can squat well if they can't squat they're not going to overhead squat so no you know you're dealing with a problem and then you use like i said the medicine ball on the wall you do a lot of the uh, is either ankle mobility. So one of the things that I found is doing seated calves because everybody stretches the, 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 the uh, gastrox standing, which is good. But you when you get in that deep flexion, that's a different breed of calf and said, well, I, I'm a former high school coach and I think all coaches should start coaching at high school. Uh, in every sport 
because if you can coach high school kids, it becomes much easier when you can, you can recruit or draft kids because now you're drafting the cream of the crop and uh, you know, they should be able to execute things. But when you have to teach the fundamentals, no different than education when you're learning how to do math, reading, or any other academic skill. So uh, being able to teach that. So now what do you do? Well, you're gonna have one group that can do it, one group that can squat, can, can't overhead squat, and you're gonna have one group that can't squat. So the medicine ball on the wall, just for playing squats is good. Uh, I like uh, sometimes the sumo deadlift standing on things with light weights will help the squat. But then you got to look at their ankle. And I was talking about ankle mobility and not every high school is going to, you know, you can't have 10 seated calf machines. So all you do is get a, like I get a, a, a big block, like, uh, oh, I don't know. I got two uh, eight by fours or eight by eights. And then I just put put the feet up on it, seated in a chair, and put a, a, a bumper plate over their legs, and had them go up and down. Or even if you get on something you can hold, and you raise their feet up, their their toe uh, heat up like on a four by four, or two by four, have them bend their knees, and then just then just do uh, calf raises that way, because now you're going to get the soleus, which is important for strengthening, but the mobility. So the simple way is just get a big block, put your toes up on it, sit in chair and put a weight on it. You know, that's, and see, that's the thing about teaching high school. You don't have the money. Now today's, I see the high school weight rooms. God, they're unbelievable. Uh, I had a gentleman build me 10 power racks and 10 Olympic bars. I gave him a York bar and he copied it and I showed him a power rack and he made it. He, he developed, his name was Joe Cunha. In the old days, they would have when you, the tractor or we'd call the big truck, the big semi, the two trailers had a, what they call a third wheel. And a long time ago, if you didn't need that, you had to leave it there. Well, he developed, and it was called Jiffy Lock, the thing to snap up under the truck so they didn't have to leave it, as I understand. So he built me a Rogers sled. So uh, that's what we had. It was a very basic weight room. But the basics are what you need to do. So anyway, get your kids to squat. If you can get them all to overhead squat eventually. So you'll have three groups. The ones you don't have to worry about, the ones you need to improve yeah, the upper probably can squat, but can't overhead squat, then the kids can't do either. So you just develop, you know, and people say, oh, I can't coach a large group. Well, then you can't coach a team sport. Because my first year at Monroe High School, basically, I handled the whole spring by myself and with a few guys that donated their time, but really weren't part, you know, I had, you know, so and when I ran the program at Moreau and when I coached the 49ers, I was the only guy there. So you, you learn to coach on the run, you learn to organize and you don't give a dissertation on how to do everything. You got to use a few words that paint a big picture, not a lot of words to paint a cloudy picture. So if you want someone to get into the hang, you have to stand them straight up, slightly bend your knees slightly. Now, your hips will move back 
backwards, your shoulders move forward, keep your, your weight will transfer from toward this part of the foot towards the, the back part, your body weight, and keep your back tight. So basically your butt moves back, your shoulders move forward, your weight moves from the ball of the foot or the front, more mid to front to the back. And how far do you get it in the hang? Whatever the flexibility in the arm lengths. Some guys run, some guys hang position. I know Ron Harper, his hang position in his arms were so long where and Scotty's was much, you know, down below their knees, you know, where some guys' arms are short, you know, or if you tried to get Ron in what we'd call the power position or the where you explode in the Olympic lifts, normally it's up mid-thigh or higher and clean his was down on top of the knees because of the arm length, you know. Anyway, so you just have to learn to coach on the run and you have to organize things. But see, when you're in high school, first, it's easy to get the kids' attention and you really develop as a coach. Just think as a teacher, how difficult it is for elementary teachers from kindergarten, you know, through the, especially early grades to develop those academic skills you need when you have a variety of group of students with varying abilities. So I know I went long, but I, and here's the other thing. If you're a young strength and conditioning coach, I wish there was a better title for that. And I'll give you my reasons why in a minute. Even if you're at a college level and it's your first job, at least go watch how the basketball coach or the football coach better the football coach or soccer coach that has a lot of kids, how they learn to organize a large group and coach. And because you can't just focus on one athlete when you're coaching and then go watch the track and field coach, the jumps coach, the throws coach and sprint coach for biomechanics and how they develop those skills. And then if you're fortunate enough, go get around a good weightlifting coach to learn how to coach the Olympic lifts. Cause like some people say, you can't coach them a large, you can, but you got to know what you're doing and don't coach what you don't know. Go what you don't coach, what you don't know, but go learn what you don't know, but learn to do it first. I had to learn a lot of things after I got coaching and I, I had to learn them myself and get the feel and okay, that, you know, and then go from there. And I made a lot of mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. Just try to spend as much time with people that know things you don't. Don't spend a lot of time with people know things you already know, because not that you can, I mean, not, not in a friendship way, that's great, but spend time. That's why I spent time with Don Chu, uh, originally uh, Jimmy Smith. Then I brought in Russ Nip former world record, brought the, brought the late Carl Miller in, who is a, uh, the American strength coach, uh, not strength coach, Olympic weightlifting coach for the Olympics we didn't go, go to. And then I, I brought in a lot of other people when I was with the, uh, Charlie Francis. And then, you know, I brought in like Carmelo Bosco and I became friends. I visited with a lot with Mike Stone, John Garhammer, uh, uh, Dick Dick Smith with York Barbell, the great guy, Yuri Vardanian, Coachman, Dragomir Sherosian. Uh, oh God, you know I had. Oh God, I'm I forget. Uh, Kale Hawken and, and 
I spent time with Bill Kramer. I'm always forgetting. And then a lot of PT people like Rob Panarella. There was a whole group in Denver. I spent time with Mark Comerford because I wanted to learn something. If you want to learn something, go to the originator. Don't go to the impersonator. A lot of, some people came back from Australia. So, oh, this is how you use the TA and do all this. And they had it all screwed up. And all this uh, core stability, there are specific tests for your specific dysfunction. So let's say you have pain walking, standing, or sitting, but not lifting. Well, that's a low load dysfunction. It can be neurological. It can be muscular. It can be soft tissue. It can be joint and the combination. So when you say a state stability program, you have to know what you're working. It's like, let's put it in, uh, let me put it in a broad terms. And I know uh, uh, for your audience, I'm rambling, but I'm trying to keep it because we're talking about uh, testing. Everybody, uh, today, they've got so many tests, you don't have time to train. And if someone's got a hangnail, they've got to fix that before you, you know, can do anything. Well, the first and first, most important test is can they play? If they do not have the instincts to play the game, I don't care what you do, unless you've got the man that walked on water that can bless them and give them something they didn't have, nothing you're going to do is going to make a difference. It's like taking a, an average IQ and, and putting them in a class that only Einstein could do well in. So you have to give them now, with a caveat to that, young high school kids will develop certain, you know, they will get better because of maturity, but taking that out. So can they run fast? If they can run real fast, they can jump high. They can jump long because those things correlate to running fast. Whatever you get, can they overhead squat and do the press point? Well, they can do those two things. They're trainable because I know already They've got mobility. I already know they got speed, so I know what I'm doing. Now, the question comes, well, what about their agility or change direction? What did you just tell me as a coach? You said this athlete, male or female, can play. Well, that tells you they can change the direction because if you, can, you don't have agility for that particular sport, it means you can't change direction. You, can, you can't make a tackle if you can't adjust your body to the proper position to make impact or on basketball when the, you're guarding someone or soccer, you're changing direct, whatever sport it may be. So you can do a change direction. Uh, so I think, you know, those are the important things. Now you can use the jump breakdown where you do squat jump. I saw someone put a squat jump on the, on the internet, you got to be careful what you put on there because when they when the guy jumped, he went down. The squat jump means no counter movement. You put your hand underneath their chin. Then you can do the counter movement. You can do Carmelo's repeat jump. I also we also did it to Bulls where we take a step, whatever foot they preferred. Both feet will go left or right on the mat, mat and jump. We call the step close, so it'll go from linear to vertical. Uh, you know, so you can do uh, various skill, you know, test, not skill, excuse me, uh, to look at physical components. But if you, if you, if you can, if they can play, they can run fast, 
They can do the overhead squat properly. Now, obviously they can't, then you've got to look into that when you're testing him. And then for whatever change direction, everybody has that one they like, the pro agility, which is fine. We did a little different one, but that's that's fine. Ours had choices in it. Uh, and then you, you know, you can break down the jump. You can look at their flexibility and mobility in more individual terms if necessary. Uh, there was one test you could do if you wanted to see what kind of heart the group had. You take a 12 inch box. We got this from the, Don and I got it from, oh, what the slalom, the downhill skiers. And they used a 40 centimeter, we used 12 inches. And you start on top of the box and every time you two, two foot bilateral hit the ground the other and back to the box that every every time you talk to top the box that was one and you went over and if you could do 90 90 seconds you were you you had a heart or you watch if the if the kids didn't quit it's not so much the total is who would fight it and who would surrender so i mean that's a long but you know you want to know what kind of kids you got dealing you know that's it is a very very difficult test and boy the first 10 seconds are wonderful. After that, or 30 seconds, it's a bear. And, and if you want to work up to it, where the first week you do 30, the next week you do 60 for, you know, twice a week and then work, that's fine. But it'll tell you not only about their elasticity, but it, it'll tell you a lot about how hard they're willing to try. So anyway, that's just a thing on testing. And, you know, you can do it in groups. It can all be done. It's not brain surgery. No, and I think that a lot of it gets overlooked and overdone as being along the lines of brain surgery at times when it's just oh. really, you've got to find the, you got to find what works and stick with it and find what might be inhibiting the things that will work. Well, you know, it's like single leg strength. And there's single leg strength is important. And, you know, we didn't do a lot of it at, I didn't do a lot of it at Moreau other than bounding and some single leg hops, but we sprinted a lot. And we only had one knee surgery in the varsity in six years and two in the overall program in six years, maybe three, one kid after I left Mayhem. So we had two to three over six to 700 kids participating. Now there's a lot of reasons for that other than the office. See, we didn't call, I would, I, strength and conditioning coach was a new term later for me. We could just call it the off-season program. And when you call it the off-season program, it didn't limit, oh, we just had to get strength and condition. That encompasses all of things. And when I was at Moreau, I added plyometrics to it. I added downhill running from the, uh, 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 we were young grad assistants at Kansas State. Gib Romain was at Maryland and he knew Frank Costello and, and he, Gib was a defensive line coach and he gave me their downhill running program. So we added in uh, my last year's years in Monroe, we ran downhill. Now, Carmelo Bosco said, you don't want to speed them up more than 5.5%. Uh, and I went back and figured out, we probably didn't even speed them up. This was very slight. And we ran uphill. Uh, and so uh, we didn't do a lot of single leg, true single leg strength, but we did it dynamically. And if you want to measure single leg strength, there's a, it's a, uh, I think the simplest easy way is you start on a 12 inch box 
you're on top. You, you are now on your right, uh, left leg and your right leg is gonna go down. Can you go down and touch your toe, go down under control, touch your toe and come up and come back up and down five times without hitting. And then just add four to six inches. So now you see if someone at my height, I get up about 22 inches is almost a full squat. Can I go eccentrically? You don't even have to come back. Can I go eccentrically all the way down and control that three to five seconds? And you can do that. That's a real simple. And if you want to post it, I'll send you a picture of it. That's a great test. And then Mark Comerford's compression test on the wall, where if you can picture your body, you're in a push-up position, but both feet are up on the wall. So you're extended. Here's my feet. Now I take one of my feet and I off the wall and I switch back and forth. Now that doesn't measure so much single leg, but you talk about torso uh, stability, your scapulas, winging. I'll send you a video clip you can use for that if you want to put it part of the present, because I think it's a great test for the coaches. Because if you can't compress your body against the wall and maintain that position, how are you going to squat with load? So you're basically in a push-up with your feet against the wall, even at shoulder well, height. Yeah. And then you're doing and a mountain climber in a sense. Exactly. But what you do when you do the mountain climber, climber you, don't, you don't rotate, you don't sink, you don't arch, you scap, you don't wing, you don't poke your chin. And it's a great a great test it's a great exercise for kids yeah for i always say kids everybody's younger for athletes and it's a great good warm-up uh so i got that from mark cumberford who was one of the brightest guys i've ever met uh, and practical and so you can do things but if you listen to me it doesn't need fancy equipment if you need a lot of fancy equipment, if you can't coach without GPS and video and all that, you might want to think of another profession because you haven't developed these, your eyes and ears. And all that technology is wonderful. I'm not knocking it. But an overuse early in your coaching career, I think, impedes you because you're not forced. Well, how are they doing? You know? I'll give you a simple example. I would bring guys in, ah, Charlie, he'd look at my guys doing the drills and then he would do them and he'd correct them. Oh, that looks better. See, cause my eye was only as good as the athlete I had doing them. The advantage of bringing people in, you grow and it shows your athletes. I don't know everything. I'm still trying to learn like they're trying to learn. And at the professional level, John Paxson told me this, and I don't think John would mind me using this quote. He was a great guy. Oh, what a tough guy. Great guy. You know, you don't hit that three-point shot against Phoenix without believing you can. He, he didn't get the ball and pass it. He, he got that ball, and he wanted it. Because he, he told me, I think he said this on air, he had practiced that shot a thousand, thousands of times as a kid winning the big game. But So John said, one of the things he respected about our program was I didn't let my ego get in the way. I was willing to learn from other people. I didn't know everything. No one does. And so Charlie would came in and one time Charles Pollockin came in 
and he uh, noticed something the guys were doing, I had an athlete doing push jerks or whatever, something like that. And he said, well, you know, one of the things when he dips, he's dropping his elbows a little bit. Well, he was good. So that I didn't, that was my, my uh, vision for perfect. And I didn't see that. And the other thing what happens when you coach the guys over a while, it starts, it's kind of like eating the same food all the time. It all starts to look the same. When Dragomir Sorosian came in, and, and drag came in and he says, you got to, I'll try to imitate drag. Oh, you have to propulse your body. I said, what do you mean? He said, put my hand on my, sh on his shoulder. And he had no knee flex and he just popped off the ground. So I learned something from Dragomir. Uh, I, I learned something from everybody I brought in. Uh, Kale Hackington, he said, you know, you you have to you know if you're stiff and not and contracted you don't have good flexibility a lot of times it's because you're contract he said well a muscle can't contract if it's already contracted the same thing charlie francis said he said it's not only how important you how quick you contract the muscles how fast you can relax it because you can't have the next so you learn all these things you know i had uh, oh god angel spasoff in the guy that really promoted all the single leg training. But you know what? Everybody forgot. He also promoted the step up. But that, see what happens is people, well, everybody does the step up. And now they've come up to find there's research that the step up is one of the best things you can do for your glute. And I just do it from step down. And Angel stayed in my house. So you meet all these people, you bring them in. You, uh, We had a, each year, I think we had an eighteen to twenty thousand dollar budget for equipment and consultants. I never spent my equipment budget. Once we got what we needed, we had we had racks, and we had the first half rack long before the other company did because I had the guy make it when I was with the 49ers. A guy called me. Long story short, he sent me a no. I don't want a power rack. Guys don't like lifting. Cut them in half. And that was the first half wreck in 82. His name was Rick Adams, safety gym in Hillsburg, California. He made all my stuff for me. And uh, so we had the budget, but I spent that $18,000 year to bring. I flew, Car uh, Carmelo came in from Europe. Hockington came in from Europe. Uh, you know, Comerford was already here doing seminars, but I paid him. You know, Drag was here. Uh, you know, so... You know, Chu was here, Charlie was here, uh, and I'm forgetting people. And Rob and I, I, I'm sorry, I forget people, and I apologize to people that may listen. I forgot a lot of people's names, but they, who contributed. But that's how you grow. You you don't grow well. I just bought a whole new set of Olympic weights. What was wrong with your other ones? That isn't going to make them lift anymore. Oh, I got, I got this better. Is that going to make them run fat? Is that going to make them better? Spend the money on knowledge. If it's a book, uh, I go on Twitter and get stuff off. Some of it's good. Some of it's a little sketchy, but I like to see what people are thinking. Uh, you know, when I became a strength and conditioning coach, quote, there was no internet. So you had to call a coach and he may have an article from somebody. Uh, it's like, once I found out about Michael Yessi's sports review, 
I have every copy he's ever made. I might be the only, I've got them all. And I gave them to a great young strength coach outing uh, with the Chiefs, Ryan Reynolds. And I've been the four, I have a lot of, not a lot, I have some young men that were interns to me, like Jonas Serration at North Carolina, great. Uh, uh, I know, uh, then I, there's uh, Rick Ladle has a private business in Naples, who so does a great job. Damon Davis at Auburn. Of course, my ex-assistant, it wasn't an intern or assistant to me for many years. Eric Killens one. Mike Catone has done a great job with the strength, with the Olympic weightlifting. Jeff Macy out at Oregon State worked with us, did a great job. Uh, Timothy Rabus, who was at North Carolina State, and he's with an NFL team now. And then I've got a young man at DePaul, and I can never remember his name. I think it's Jimmy Doobie. I always get him mixed up with another one of my interns. And I forget. Well, and MJ's there now. Who? MJ's there now. Uh, Matt Johnson. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So you have all these guys that you worked with and came in, but they all learned the concept of learning. So when I was a young strength coach, kind of like Hogan said, you had to dig it out of the dirt. There was no National Strength and Conditioning Journal or Research Journal. And so, and then I brought in Zatorsky. And Satorsky walked in our training facility and he looked at me, brilliant guy, nice human being. And he looked at me and said, this is the first, one of the first training facilities I said, in the United States. he's seen. And I'm going, what do you mean you've been at Penn State? He said, track, barbell, dumbbell, boxes, herd of medicine balls. <laughs> and and we brought in Mel Sif, the late Mel Sif. Uh, so, you know, if you don't get anything out of this, just remember, don't become the great Bob Devaney. And I say this all the time, and people get tired of me being repetition. But proper res- proper repetition is the is the method how you learn is the mother of all learning is proper repetition. So if I say it enough, maybe some people will pick up on it. You know, Bob Devaney said, don't become too impressed with yourself. And for your young coaches, Bob Devaney is the one that took the Nebraska program and turned around a great coach. I played against this. So I know how great he was. Uh, Said, never become too impressed with yourself because the size of your funeral depends on the weather. I'll repeat that. The size of your funeral, those who attend depends on the weather. Because let's face it, no one likes to go to a funeral, especially at my age, because, hey, you know, I'm younger than that. I'm older than that guy or that gal. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) This doesn't last forever. Uh, You know, so the size of the crowd you get isn't based on your personality and what you contributed to mankind. It's what's the side of the weather? How's the weather? If it gets cold, oh, it's too cold. It's raining, it's too wet. There's snow and I can't get there. Oh, it's too hot. <laughs> so it better be 72 degrees and perfect. And you better have a good uh, post-game party. <laughs> yeah. A lot of truth to that, though. You know, I think that that's something that people end out kind of spinning their tires to with, with a lot of those things, Coach. When you look at, like, what we do and what's important and how things need to grow and, and where we actually think kind of how much 
I don't know, pull and say and impact that we have. You know, I think, you know, you said it best. You said the most important thing is if they can play the game. And I think that leads us really well into the, the big three questions here that we can get you rolling on, Coach. You know, because I think a lot of these young coaches and, you know, even some of us that have been lucky to be in the same place and in the game for a while, you know, we, we still are kind of spinning our tires with some things. So where let's start with number one, Coach. Where, where are some, some mistakes or some kind of misconceptions that you see in the world of sport performance and, and where are some ways that you think we can still be better? Well, the, I don't want to call it mistakes. I think it's perceptions. They think so, at one time, everybody was in sports specific. Like how did my program change from Moreau high school? I went from Moreau high school to the NFL. I had just turned 34. There were players as old as I was. So that was a real unique experience. How did, how did the program change when I went to baseball and basketball? And then later when I was with the Bulls, I had a private business, soccer, hockey. And every, you know, everybody said, well, how did it change? What was the, you know, I said, the only thing that changed was the surface they played on, the uniform they wore, and the possibility of having an implement, the different implement. Other words, a basketball is a different shape than a football. In basketball and football, you don't have a bat or a hockey stick. Your uniform's different. But the objective is still the same. And here it is. The more proficient your athlete comes with absorbing and becoming more efficient with ground reaction forces, the more efficient that he comes through your training program or maintains those qualities, the better his consistency of performance will be based on the first thing you just had said, if they can play. We had guys at the Bulls that could jump out of the gym but couldn't play basketball. It all starts with could they play. So what do you mean by ground reaction? So if you've got someone that's this, well, you're dead in the water because they can't play. But if you can get this, or I've seen guys that are like this, but they had great skills. I won't name them, but I had a guy at the bull that didn't have them, but he was big man. He knew how to play. But, so he used getting stronger as a benefit. But the more efficient you can make them using that ground. Well, what's that take? certain amount of force, certain amount of rate of force development, efficiency using the stretch shortening cycle, and the coordination to put it in the skill of the sport. Well, how do we do that? So let's kind of give you a quick background. Well, how about testing? All right, we talk about it. Now, how do I know what program to put the guy in? Well, even the fast, how strong are they? You could use that single leg squat thing to test or whatever you want. How explosive? Well, we've already talked about that. So uh, how elastic? We've talked about that. Well, you, you know, so you look at those things and what kind of conditioning. The one thing that's missed in all this is work capacity. You can have a great level of all those skills, but by the first quarter, if you're dead, tired, if your efficiency goes down, it does you no good. And what I think and I feel sorry for the NFL strength coaches today because 
they only have five weeks in the offseason, which is a complete, absolute joke. And the NFL owners should be ashamed of themselves for caving in on that. What they don't understand, the NFL, just because someone's got a billion dollars doesn't mean they're smart in everything. We sometimes think, oh, he came from this prestigious university. Yeah. And they don't have the brains to come out of the rain. So if, if what, what is a, I don't know what the payroll in the NFL is today, but it's very big. So you're saying from the time, the end of your season to the start of your season, let's say that could be five months. You're only going to have those guys work out. You're only going to take that investment that you have and have mandatory workouts for five weeks. Cause that's what it comes. Now, Okay, I would like to go to that owner. I said, you've got a billion dollars. You're gonna, you're, let's say you're going to give me half a uh, hundred million dollars to invest, but I'm not going to give you a return for five months. What are you, a moron? I'm not giving you my money. That's what you're doing with the players. That's your biggest investment. That's the most important thing in your organization. And that's tr- tough. And now let me just kind of divert from this, and I'll get right back to that. In an organization, there's about seven things that determine winning. Because you ask me this question, I'll answer now. One is ownership. Do they have their priorities right? Do they hire the right general manager? We had a great one in Chicago, and I'll say a great one, Jerry Krause. And I want to belabor that point. Everybody, He's gotten in some criticism, and I didn't like the criticism in the last dance. Who brought John Paxson there? Who brought Bill Cartwright? Who drafted Pippen and Grant and Coach and got Kerr and got Harper and got Longley and got B.J. Armstrong and Stacey King? You know, who brought all those guys in? I, I'm probably forget, forgetting somebody, but who made all those? And Dennis Rodman. Who hired Phil Jackson? Who brought in that assistant coaching staff? Who hired that scouting staff? He hired me. Some people may say that was the worst decision he made. I don't know. I was there for 22 years. And, you know, and the medical staff. You talk about, it started with Mr. Reinstorf, great owner. Guy was absolutely fabulous to work for. I used to sit and talk to him. And if you ever get a chance to go to a professional team, the one thing I did, I said, I'll go, but I want to negotiate my contract with the owner because everybody else comes and go. I was an independent contractor. And then, uh, so all those things. Now, the other thing that determines your success, and this is where the NFL has a problem, is your relationship with the players union. And the players union has kind of dictated this off season from what I gather. Now in the NBA, we couldn't make them come. We, I was very fortunate when we're talking about organizations. We had a group of players who want to win. Now, did I come in there and motivate them? Everybody, you know, every coach, you know, you always see this guy. You'll see guys in there. Boy, I trained this guy. And, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And in two years, he's out of the league. Uh, no. If the, what I did try to do is present them why these things would help and have a, a good, solid, common sense program. And there was a guy named Dave Corzine was the first guy to buy in, him and Charles Oakley. And then when Bill Cartwright came in, he told, uh, 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 Dave told 
Bill. And then Johnny Paxson would tell maybe BJ. So, and then Horace bought, you know, he bought in and Pippin bought in. And then they, you know, and they had a camaraderie. There's a, a very nice podcast not because I did it, but Stacy King talks about it. If you go on and find his podcast, they had a bond. They wanted to win. So I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you know, in quote, I did this. Remember this. I was a strength coach for the Bulls. We didn't win a championship. We weren't in the playoffs. And after all those good players left, we weren't there again. So if you think it's all about you, it's about the people you coach. They're the ones that determine. And your job is, first of all, if you get a really great one who really wants, is don't screw them up. It's like in medicine. The first thing is do no harm and don't overthink it. So when you go back to the sports, all of them put force in the ground. I wasn't dealing with swimmers. Now, what were the differences from football to basketball? The height of the players. Now, I dealt with a few tall guys in football but not like that so when we talk about squatting what was the depth the depth that they could do it right you can't force people now over time some of them were able to get better depth some of them couldn't did we all back squat everybody no some of them we front squatted now i found now, this could not be true. I'm not going to, don't take anything I say as an absolute because my great friend, Charlie Francis said, there are no absolutes. And if you watch golf swings, there's, they'll say, here's the degree your wrist should be at the top of your swing. And then you see someone like Dustin Johnson was like this. That's his individual characteristics. So there are no absolutes. We would, I found guys that were taller and the tall guys who were cut long-legged seemed to front squat better, seemed to. I could be wrong. And the only thing I, in the back squat, when you go down, and I, I, this isn't a good example, if this lever is so much shorter, this is going so much further, this doesn't have the range of motion to meet it, I could be wrong. We did the safety squat bar. We did whatever they could do. If it had to be a leg press, until we could figure it out. You do what they can do, build on what they can do, circumvent the weaknesses and try to get them to that. Uh, so the mistake I might have made early, I don't, you can't make everybody look the same. So I had, and then in Olympic lifting, we adjusted the height, how far down they went. Now, if they could pull off the floor or clean or snatch off the floor, we did it. I still think, and I see football programs. Oh, we can't get them off the floor. You better get them down below, below the knee someplace. Because the problem in football, and I just talked to my brother, Dick, and some of you may not recognize that he is my brother because he was a good, he's, he, he was, he's, he's a good looking one. <laughs> I'm the old beat up linebacker. But we were talking, he said, the game is played standing up today. People don't bend their knees anymore. Very seldom you'll see a guy really deliver a blow once in a while you will. But when you're standing up, I think that could possibly lead to more injuries that when you're down in a good striking position. Well, when you pull below the knees, you don't have to clean or stand, but even if it's mid shin, we had Tony Kukoc. I've got video of him cleaning 110. I don't know if I have the 110, but I've got a 90 or hundred for mid shin. He just naturally put it there. 
Did I change it? No. So you had to vary that based on the skill and the, uh, and what is that called? The measurements of the body. What do you call it? There's a word for it. anatomical anthropometrics. Well, whatever it's called. Anyway, the different limb sizes. So we had to adjust to that. We didn't run 40 yard sprints because they never sprint more than about 12 yards. So we might run 30s. You know, now does absolute speed carry over to acceleration? Yes, but they very seldom got out of first gear. They were always in this position. So, uh, and, uh, and, and then talking about basketball, people ask me, what did you do? What did you have them do? I said, we lifted. Well, what kind of lifting? Pulls, squats, presses, Olympic lifts. We said, why'd you do so much of that? And Charlie's, we did a lot of medicine ball and tempo. We did some sprints, some jump. I said, first of all, they've been jumping the whole life. Most of them, they've been doing a plyometric season six to eight months for most of their whole life. Their knees didn't need any more impact. We did some with the particular players. The one thing they hadn't done is any, what we would call strength and explosive training. So it, I'll put it in academic terms. If you had a person come into your class with a mathematical genius, but had no English, would you continue to work on math or would you give them the skills to English? Something he hadn't learned or they'd learned. So, I felt that was going to be the fact that they didn't have good strength levels, that that would transfer more into their sport. So, you know, now today, in, maybe they're coming in with a better, big, better background, but they didn't at that time. And when we're talking about transfer to sport, the better the athlete, the more what you do in the offseason will transfer if you did this, if you improve that. That's it that right there whether you do it you do it some plyos some olympic lifting some squat jumps sprinting whatever it is but i go back to the first thing we did is make sure they had a base we did steve javork's complex and we had and we added that as the years went in because i brought steve in another brilliant guy all good common sense we found for the taller athlete we tried to get them to do his one set of six complex of each, we tried to get them to do 40% of their body mass. Now, at when they got above six, six, I cut it to about four reps because Steve does that. He was used to little short guys like me. And the time, I, the time under tension, which we didn't do reps, time under tension and all that, that but the fact that they move the bar so much further. Now, Horace Grant, he could do 50 kilos at that thing. Yeah, I can't hear you. Now, this is the old, I'm sorry, this is the old upright row, snatch, oh, yeah. squat to press, good morning, bent over row, yeah. snatch. Now, Horace, and he did 50 kilos. And That's he impressive. weighed, yeah, he did, well, Horace Grant. Now, let me tell you one thing. Horace Grant was going to be Horace Grant, whether he worked with Alfred Meal or Joe Smuts. I was just smart enough to know I, he had that and he had a great work ethic. All those guys had great work ethic, but he did, you know, Scotty had real long arms. So that presented a different set of problems. He could racking the bar and things. And he had back surgery 
after his first season before we ever had a chance to work with him. So, you know, he, Horace was a perfect storm for a strength and conditioning coach. So you, you now again, I got lost my train of thought while we were on here, coach. We were talking about, so the adaptations was, this is what they hadn't done. So they were going to get a transfer. And the better the player, you know, and I'll tell you what, they wouldn't have showed up. Horace and Scotty showed up, I think, like it was either the day of or the week after we lost to Detroit in the, uh, the 90 playoffs. I think it was the day after. And that summer in 19, let's see, that had been the summer we won our first championship in 91. So it was a summer 91. The team averaged 55 workouts and two players, uh, Paxson and Cartwright, had knee surgery. So it would even be great. Now, I couldn't force them to be there. It wasn't like I was paying them. They wanted to win. And they saw this as a benefit because they're growing men. They weren't, they weren't there because about, you know, I had that kind of control. So those things trans, but we had been doing that all along. You know, and, and, and one of the things in uh, The Last Dance, it kind of uh, made the assumption or it said when Michael got hurt against Detroit, everybody started lifting. It showed, that's not true. Those guys, the team had started lifting in 1985. Not everybody, but it had gradually built up over time. And in that summer, it really was the, uh, whatever the word, I can't think of it, a culmination of it all that they had worked so, they had worked so hard. And then uh, later, Phil had actually made it mandatory in season for everybody, but, you know, MJ. So anyway, that's, but that was a transfer from basketball. Baseball, you had to worry about the shoulder joint, but it's still the same thing. If you improve this, because we know from golf and now baseball and even pitching and throwing, it's how efficient you are utilizing ground reaction forces. You watch those guys hit a baseball. You watch the great Babe Ruth. He knew he may have not known this, but he was using ground reaction forces. And one of the greatest injustices ever done to an athlete by Hollywood was Babe Ruth. They did, they portrayed him in a very negative, they didn't portray him as smart as he really was. Because I've met people whose coaches played with Ruth. And yeah, he was the character they portrayed, but he also was very smart. You know, he was a, he was a great pitcher. People don't realize he held the World Series uh, scoreless, scoreless innings ready, record until I think Whitey Ford broke it in the late 50s, early 60s. But there's a great thing on hitting. There's about a 10-minute thing on biomechanics of hitting with Ruth. And you see that. He basically hits it like the long drive guys. He loads that bat, you know, and in golf proved that ground reaction. You watch them, they're jumping off. You watch Hogan and Sneed, they're all pushing into that ground. Rotation from golf starts with the ground, not rotating your hips. It's pushing in the ground. So the more efficient you are at what? Using ground reaction forces. Now to improve all the, now to kind of back up and go in in basketball, you had to make sure, I hate this word, that the core was prepared. Well, if you start with light exercises, the core gradually adapts. 
And Dr. Tom Nesser, I believe his name is, I think he's out of one of the Missouri colleges, did a study and found that the squatting was a more efficient way than, than the plank. Much more efficient for core stability. And there's nothing wrong with the plank for lead up, but think about it, pressing. What do you got? That bar is snatching, jerking, you know, pulling the bar off the floor. Any simple, even if you're doing a simple exercise that your core, it's all linked together. And what's happened today, it's kind of like the cartoon where you see the cartoon character's body, lower body starts off and his upper body stays there. No, they're all connected. So when you're standing, you're using your core. Now, the mistake can be made with the tall guys. You've got to make sure they're ready to do that. Good old-fashioned back extensions with a row. I got this from Bob Heiss, the late Bob Heiss, who used to have Maverick Barker. He said, we'd take a, we would take, and later, we didn't start with these things. He'd all kind of, we'd do back extensions, and we'd take an easy curl bar. And, and then as we, I can't remember, as we went up, we rode, or when we went to the top, when we were there, we did a row. So we got the whole body. So you're in, a, you're coming up in the back extension, then you're up and you row. And then a, a, a good physical therapist out of Denver in that group, Pete Emerson said, we put a guy on a, or gal on a bench, have them do, see how much they can row when they're supported. Now have them get in the back extension, come up and see how much they can roll when the upper body isn't supported. Now, if there's a huge difference in that, what's that tell you? Now, what that difference should be, I'm not going to say. Maybe 60%. I don't know, 70. I don't know. So, but you've got to you got to recognize that structure. The other thing is the taller they are, the less volume you can do. Now, my good friend Mike Catone took a kid that like let's say 80 percent or i can't remember this and he squatted and he measured the distance and the amount of work then he took someone i believe six two or six four at 80 percent well the guy at six the taller athlete did much more work even though the percentages were the same so now you get a guy six six seven feet holy smokes so you got to be careful and what do we see in the nba playoffs who's the first one generally to fatigue used to be the big man the last guy is the smaller person so because you're not as strong per pound per body weight so that's why you got to have a work capacity and good old javorics complex you can use the dumbbell versions okay but you can't get that good morning in it now everybody panics about the good morning well coach it right coach it no only have them go keep that back at that angle don't get it there I always want, to, even if they could go lower, I want the head higher than the hips. I don't want this, even if they can get there. Now, you may see a world-class weightlifter like Vardanian doing, but he was built to do that. That's why he was one of the greatest weightlifters of all time. In the 1980 Olympics, I think only four guys in all weight classes outlifted him. So, when you adapt something from another sport, whether it be jump training, sprint training, strength training, Olympic lifting, uh, rehab, mobility, flexibility, whatever it may be, always have to look at what you're dealing with. 
Now, and when I talk about baseball, there you need to work a little more velocity because they're running 30 yards to first base. And if they have to round the base. And so, you know, I'll give an example in soccer. We never did any uh, improved distance running. And we had a little young man from Loyola High School in Chicago, where my son went to school. His name was Angelo Mikanopoulos. I remember that. And so we did all the same training we would do. We did the tempo medicine ball. And he came back to me and the coach first day did a, a distance run. Guess who won? Angelo. And he never ran more than 200 meters. But he was strong. He was powerful. He did the tempo. So, you know, the basics are going to be the basics. And, you know, hockey they're bent over a lot. So you got to watch the, their posture and they're not very good at overhead lifting because they're bent over. So I think it's not necessarily that they have to become great at that, but I think it's important to work on Bill of to do this and keep that good posture, not only for hockey, but for the long-term health of the person. So we dealt with a, a lot of different things. Uh, I'm probably forgetting some of the things we did. But we didn't do anything that was unique. We didn't do anything that was a secret that I can write. You know, you never see, I don't have seven different DVDs with number seven being the secret to number six and six being the secret to number five. And I didn't do that because there are none. It's common sense. There's only, you can only work on maximal strength, general conditioning, then maximal strength, how explosive and explosive strength is a misnomer. And here's another guy I got to know, Robert Newton. And he said, athletes don't really explode. No, it's really an impulse. And Olympic lifting is an impulse. J jump training is an impulse. Uh, sprinting is this. So you're really training that, that period of time. So you train a maximal strength, impulses, either with resistance, jump training, sprinting, and you're, you can have your movement things, uh, ex, you know, but if they can't play all the movement agility, isn't going to do a world of good. Now, one thing we did at football, baseball, is a little thing I picked up from Vince Gibson at Kansas State. and talk, It was called 32nd Station. The original 32nd Station I used at Moreau High School was we took about a 16-inch blocking shield. You know those things, little thin shields? And the kids would jump over it for 30 seconds. We got in the key. We'd start on this side of the key and we'd run to that side. Your foot had to be on the line or over the line. Couldn't turn a circle. See, 30 seconds. We crabbed. So your hands and feet had to go on the line or over it for 30 seconds. I added this. We backpedaled. We backpedaled from the baseline to the free shot line. The first rep, your right foot had to go over it open up the second rep to the left and we alternate because when you're playing pass defense you're going to have to open up both ways or playing defense in basketball or baseball going back okay that's one two three and we okay i covered the and we jump rope and we did that for 30 seconds and we broke into five stations five groups and then the next person would do it then we'd rotate when we rotated in high school, I made all the kids run and break down so they were in a good athletic position. Every time we did a drill in the offseason in high school, we broke down and were in a position 
to either give a blow or receive one. We hit the, they used to laugh how many times we hit the Crowther sled. I mean, it was, we practiced, you know, you can't do it anymore. I guess we practiced three hours a day on Monday. Uh, when we played Friday night, we Monday and, and Tuesday. And the first hour at least was fundamentals. We had four days in the last two years. We spent time, I said we were going to be fundamentally sound. Every time we did a drill, and this is a great one for all you high school basketball coaches, team sport coaches, we made the kids run to the next, their coach, their next drill. They had to break down in a good, you know, in deep defensive position. And then we made them do a wave. So they had to respond. If they didn't do it right, we sent them backwards. Now, here's the thing we did in football. During defensive scrimmage, whether it was completely live or not, I blew a whistle. By the second whistle, every defensive player had to break down and move in and be by that ball carrier. So be ready. We're going to hit you. And you do that day after day after day in fundamentals. Don Chu said that was one of the one main reasons we didn't have injuries because your kids were always in a position to hit somebody or be hit. And the great Jake Lamata says he, he could take a blow. And if you don't hit, how are you going to learn to take a blow? You can't play tackle football teaching it's touch. Now, that does not mean I taught tackling. I put them in the position I want them to be. In other words, this is I'd have them wrap around and crimp their arms. That's what my dad taught me, crimp them. And I'd have their shoulder pads right here, their helmet off the side. Boom. Step back one yard and make that same contact and drive the guy to the ground. We didn't do wide open, open field tackling and all that crazy stuff. A, a quick story. When I played high school football, two drills we did. I was a sophomore playing on the varsity. Now, that's not a big deal. There were only 150 kids in the school. So if you could walk and breathe. <laughs> anyway, our senior running back, one of them was 6'1", 190. I can still remember his name. It's Larry Adams. And my coach, Bill Whitham, who was the JV coach with help with the varsity, we were 15 yards apart. 10 to 15, open field tackling. And he had a bag in each side. Well, the first time we did this, he ran right over me. And I remember Coach Whittlem saying, hey, Al, did you get the name of that truck? Well, we go back, we go back to the same circle, you know, go back. And here I am matched up again. Well, the next time I got down, I made the tackle. And then we did another drill where he had pursuit, angle pursuit. And the guy would, you had to, and it was full speed. And we never, we never saw, I never saw a knee injury in high school. And from my knowledge, from the time I started watching Calistoga High School play, when my sister's boyfriend was playing quarterback until I graduated, I don't remember having a kid having a knee surgery. We had some broken legs, broken arms, broken arms, but no. And we wore the long cleats and we cross body blocked on everything below the waist. But so anyway, you know, like in soccer, you know, find, make sure any sport, whatever you think is important, make sure they're getting in that position, whatever it is, and do it over and over and over again. But to sum it all up for all these, we made little adaptations, baseball, the shoulder, basketball, the height, hockey, their posture, you know, uh, volleyball players, their jumping's a little different. It's my granddaughter's play. You know, they're not winding up to jump. 
the volleyball players doesn't need to sprint 40 yard dashes probably wouldn't hurt but you know your, your sprints are going to be a little shorter and you got to protect their knees their shoulder so you look at what the injuries are look at the height of the people look at the time constraints of the game now that 30 second station we did with the bulls we added some other things to it i didn't we added a suicide at the end of the first set and a 90 second run and we added one other thing I would add, we added medicine ball shuffle and we wanted them, you could paint a liner on the wall and you want them to shuffle and that ball hits below or on that line and shuffle and stay down. But it was the same concept I'd got working for coach Gibson. I was a graduate assistant, which meant I was the greatest gopher you ever saw. I picked up his laundry. Uh, you, in those days, there was no restriction on coaching staffs and they're all sitting there and he was left-handed. So I sat on the right side. So he wouldn't call on me. And he looked at me, Hey, Al, would you pick up my laundry? And the entire coaching staff picked up their, their newspapers in front of them and were laughing. But I appreciate what he taught me hard work. And, you know, there was, it was a great experience there. And they had a great man named Hyman Wall was the guy I reported to, but I, I, I learned a lot. Now here's one other piece of advice I can give to coaches. I made a lot of mistakes. You're not, you're not listening to some virgin here. I made more mistakes than probably 10 of you together. And I made someone that really bothered me today. One, I misinterpreted kids' attitudes, a couple of them. I mishandled them. And it bothered me. And it bothers me to this day. I misdid an exercise. We were doing, we were doing single leg jumps, and this big kid who I allowed anybody to play on the varsity, as long as they met the criteria, they could be on the team. I wasn't gonna, well, I had him do a jump, single leg jump in place. Worst thing he could do. And he hurts his knee and can't play. Didn't have surgery, strained the ligaments. Name is Jeff Montgomery. That's, and that's in 1976. I can picture we're on the, on the, on the blacktop outside the gym in the parking lot. I remember when it happens and dumbest thing I ever did should have known better, but I was a young coach at that time. I wasn't even, I was 31 years old and we just started jump training. I didn't, didn't ask the right questions. Single leg jumps are the most difficult. Don't do them with big people. Even bounding, if you're going to bound big people, bound them uphill because they're usually big people and they need to work more in drive angle anyway. But so, you know, you can mishandle and misinterpret. There's a player that I misinterpret, good player, played. I always never sure where he was. And he, he and I have become very close and it was unbelievable how much he believed in what we were doing. But my perception of his body language wasn't that. So, I made mistakes handling people. I made mistakes in things we did. Sometimes I would change, like all young coaches, I'd read this, I'd change and do this, not in my football program. We didn't, you know, I should have progressed the offense when there were nine guys on the line of scrimmage. I was still running right at them. <laughs> but I, I love, I love running. I'm an old offensive lineman, linebacker, and I love running right at them and just, and having them just being, having the defense and the coaching staff frustrated every four yards. There's nothing better than just sticking it down their throat. And we had one drive. I had a drive in a freshman team. We drove 96 yards. I had my varsity drove 92 yards. And as a newspaper wrote, a typical Moreau drive. 
And we, we'd keep the football for the whole quarter something damn there. I just love that kind of football. You know, today you got all that. The, the game today is entirely different. It's basketball on grass. It's a different game. I'm not saying it's, it's, you can't hit the quarterback. They're an endangered species. You can spike the ball. There's no more intentional grounding. You can throw it. Uh, you can't hit the receivers. When I played, you could hit the receivers. You can knock them down until the ball was in the air. You can hold. The, the last night in the game, they called holding. The next play, the guy grabs, they run them. A flare pass, what I'd call flare or quick screen, I can't remember. And the guy, Kansas City guy, grabs the guy, lets go. The guy comes and keeps a hold. And the guy, you can see him. And the referee's there, doesn't call it. He's got his hand right on him. So it's a whole different game. But uh, I, I just think that's how I adapted. You have a philosophy and you would make tweaks. You just don't throw out, oh, this is basketball. We throw everything out. This is soccer. This is field hockey. This is volleyball. You just, you emphasize different parts. It's like making, you might making, uh, making something, uh, maybe you're, uh, cooking something you might add a different seasoning to give it a little different flavor it's what you emphasize but the concept is all about ground reaction forces and i hope that answered your question thoroughly yeah no coach 100 percent. and you know we even touched upon number two in there as well and we talked a bit about that when it comes to improving continuing education and stuff so let me get you out of here on this coach July 15th and 16th in Richmond, Virginia. What can people expect from Coach Vermeil? The truth. Honesty. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not. Do not come in there thinking, oh, God, here's Coach with Bulls seven world championships. Yeah. When the good players weren't there, we didn't win. And when the bad player, when, when they left, we didn't win. And the 49ers won four world championships after I left. So, you know, I'm just a coach. I did the best I could with what I knew and I never knew enough. And I was, as my father's famous saying, you're never so good, you can't get better. And that's what we all have to learn. And we all have to learn we're human. And I'll, one of the things I want to impart, human beings are not, I have, I have a nice computer, HP. It has a solid state drive. Yeah, it has all the RAM. Well, this is a lot better than I started 30 years ago with that Apple II Plus. They get better. But when we're born, we're born with, we're born with certain inherent genes. So you, you can't hide from your genes. So that's the bottom line. But you're not born with an updated driver, updated RAM. You're, you know, it's not a, a series of progressions. We all, human beings all start the same way and end the same way since day one. Now, they're exposed to more, we're more knowledgeable, but let me ask you this, and this is why I say you're never so good. You can, has the human race gotten better where we're not killing each other, fighting wars, and hate each other for what one purpose or another? No. And human beings will take advantage of another human beings or a group will take advantage of another group, no matter what your race, your economic level, your religion, if they can. All you have to look, I'm a history minor. 
All you do is have to look at through history, all the things that men, men have fought and died for. So don't think you're born in this world. Well, God, I'm a strength coach in, in 2021. These old guys back in, you know, 80 years ago in 1930, they didn't know. I was with uh, the Eagles. Dick brought me back one time and I was showing Jerry Wampler, the great line coach he had. I don't believe, I don't know if Jerry still lived. He was a great coach. Uh, and he said, oh, we did that in the 50s, jumping up the bleachers and all those jumps, but they didn't call it blind metrics. I've got pictures from Dr. Ed Thomas of people doing all the training methods that we use today in the 1800s. So what I'm saying is there's nothing new. The only thing that's new, the only thing that's new to you, the only reason it's new to you is you just haven't been learned it yet or exposed to it. The, the thing we've learned to do is use some of the things better, but the practitioner is always ahead of the scientist. I knew one set of 10 to failure was no good. I always told people, uh, one, yeah, you're, anytime you're training to failure, you're failing to train. I said, because you can't be explosive. You can't give a maximum effort. So I said, if you want to be fast, you got to train fast. Can't train slow. So there's nothing really new. Science has helped us understand the effects of things better. Great coaches have made us understand it from their experiences. We've all learned from our failures. Uh, unfortunately, I made the same mistakes a couple times, which makes me upset. But so when they come to hear me speak, I'm going to tell them exactly what they did. If they answer a question, I'll answer it. If I don't know, I'll tell them who would probably give them a better answer. I'm not better. I, I am not any better. I didn't even hate to use that word, put myself on that statement. I'm just like you. I'm constantly learning. And there are days I did things really well and handled people well. And there was things I did that were, uh, were not as good. The one thing I learned at the Bulls, we got Ron Harper, great guy, worked his tail in though, came in the first year, realized he wasn't where he wanted to be physically. He came back at night and worked out with us. No one made him do it. He wanted to do it. And when Harper came, I said, Ron, you've been an all-star before you met Al Vermeer. If I can help you, I will. I told Dennis Rodman the same thing. Now, these guys have been really good players. So if you come in and, well, now you get in our program, we're going to make, you know, all that crap. No. You've got to realize they're growing men. Now, the audience may want to know how I handle my high school kids. Well, I was the ultimate ruler. I was at a Catholic school. But I, the, the decision to play football was up to them. I said, okay, after football season, or how we started, I would say, okay, how many, are you going to play a sport in the winter? Good, go play it. Because I'm not starting the after school program until after Christmas. So I gave them five or six weeks off. I didn't worry about it. They need time away from you. They're still young kids. Okay, you're not. We're going to have, let's say I, we're going to have 40 workouts. Okay. Now, what is your team goal? Okay. 
What's your individual goal? Who would you vote for for team captain? Well, they tell me all these things. Okay. How many workouts you're going to make? Well, I'm going to make 30. Okay. If you don't make them, you don't go out. You're not allowed out for spring football, so you're not playing in the fall. You make a decision. Now you get some kid, well, I'm going to make 10. Uh, you want to be all league, go to the playoffs, and you want to be captain, and you're going to make 10. And I never had anybody do that. What I made the kids do is look and see what they had to do to achieve their success. That's education. That's teaching them how to grow up. But you've got to stick to it. And if my best player didn't want to do it, hell of it. My second spring, I cut my two starting tackles and one was going to be all league. Did it hurt us? Yes. But in the long run, did it help the program? Because when I was walking out to practice, after they'd missed the second practice, I had a young freshman that was going to start for me the next year, a linebacker. He didn't know I was behind him. He said, I want to see if coach is a man of his word. I walked out there and said, they're gone. One practice, you miss your discipline. Next one, you're gone. And you have to be a man of your word. Don't say something you don't mean. You don't have to be doing like I did. I made him get a haircut. I was old school. It was yes, sir, no, sir. You don't have to do that. But whatever you believe in, whatever standards you have, whatever they are, be consistent. The minute you're inconsistent, and that's okay if you've got good players and you're winning. But if you start to lose, boom. You know, I talked about screwing a team up, and this is what I tell them. I had a good team come back in 76, but I didn't have the same quarterback. I had a kid that could throw, but I didn't have that guy that could make that triple option that split back work. I mean, the kid I had before, Jimmy King, he'd come down and make – he. He would take the guy that was made him pitch the ball and he'd beat him and run outside for a touchdown. You know what I said? Great job. Great job of coaching. <laughs> Never take away. Here's another thing. I said, don't make all athletes look alike. The great thing, the great ones relative to your level, do things that you can't coach. Don't uncoach it. Jimmy King did things, you know, and I had another, I had all of them did things into, well, I had this young man. We had a whole new backfield too. The offensive line was all new, but they had all played for him in the year before. But most of them had played on, you know, had played deep. And, and there were some new kids. And so we didn't run the veer quite as effectively. But those other kids had been together for two years on the varsity. And, and I didn't recognize that. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't build to what the quarterback could do to his strengths enough. I didn't, I should have emphasized the pitch more and, and we played a better schedule. We, we eventually lost to the team that was second in the playoffs. The next year we went, we were the only team to hold the team that won the whole division to two touchdowns. So the schedule was harder. I was a better coach the year after we lost the championship for whatever reason. So, uh, you, you know, you got to look at your personnel and adapt. Same in a weight room. You may have had a couple of years where, hey, I talked about the 91 players offseason. Great. We never had an offseason that good again because we went longer. You know, once you start winning the championship, you're not done. You know, so then the, the number of workouts diminished. The guys made more money. And I don't think that was ever tired. Uh, you know. And then when we got the new group in the second championship, 
they would take their programs home and come back in periodically. We didn't have as many, but the in-season participation in the last couple of years, Phil made it man. So you can't make one year always be like last year. When I was coaching in 76, I was coaching the 75 team and that was my fault. That was no one's fault. Worst job. We should have been no worse than nine and one, no worse. And, uh, and then I, in my uh, last year, we lost a championship game. And here's another thing I would tell them. Your strength as a coach, as a human being, even in just your daily life can become your weakness. I got very intense and emotional, a lot like Dick. I got too emotional for the last championship game. Didn't follow the game plan, which we would have won, and we got beat. Because we beat them with that game plan the year before. And after the game, I saw the coach about, oh, I went to speak for him because I transferred jobs to the 49ers. He said, why didn't you run that trap? We couldn't stop it. A little pop pass. I didn't want to tell him because I was a, I was a moron and allowed my emotions to get in the way. And for some reason, I just screwed it up. I swallowed the olive. So that's what I'll tell coaches. Don't put people on pedestals. I mean, I think, and I know my talks and people hear me, you say the same thing over and over. Yeah. Because this is what happened. I'm not going to tell you, make up some story that didn't happen. I think Mark Twain said something like this, and I could be wrong. People are like the moon. They have a shiny side and a dark side. And my dark side coaching was my emotions. I had an off-season program that time was, and I don't want to sound eager, but from the people was far advanced from what people were doing in the 1970s. I had an offense that was good, but I didn't take it to the next level by formations. I had all the things here and actually had worked on them. But I he, what I did with my football team, like by 76 and even 75, they had done all the work capacity. They had done the fun fundamentals of the pyramid. I could have, I didn't need quite to work on as much fundamentals. We could have went into trips. We could have, you know, other words, if you take your weak running back and put them in motion, now you got triple. Now who cover, who takes the quarterback on the outside beer? So if they cover the triple, now you've got now they got to take their free safety and move them over. Now you got a post on the backside. You still run our, we ran a little front hand off trap where the running back, instead of turning around and handing the ball, we would open up to the front and we'd cut it back. No one ever stopped. Didn't run it enough. I never ran a pass off the damn. So I came so ingrained with what I'm doing, I didn't advance. Now my off season program, I didn't. I kept searching, but I, you, you've got to be careful. You know, it's like it, in strength and conditioning, I'll give this other, we have a group, it's all single leg. No, it's all vital. No, it's a combination. Don't get so locked in. Our maximal strength isn't important. Oh yeah? Well, we've got a guy that can jump 80 feet in the air and run around the world in two seconds. If you don't have maximum strength, that means your ligament dominated. That one means your muscles, which help absorb and help locomotion. That means you're putting more stress on your ligaments and tendons, and you're going to develop tendonitis, and you're going to fatigue sooner. There's a great paper 
I could give you could put online that someone wrote at that point. So again, you have to be able to see outside the box. And when I was coaching offense, I was got a little here. I mean, I had guys lining up there two years in a row. They had nine, 10 guys on the line of scrimmage. And we're still, you know, hey, you know, it's like hitting your hand with a hammer or putting your hand on fire. You know, it's hot. So I, I don't know if anything I said appears to young coaches, but don't feel bad when you made a mistake because you're just trying. Try not to let your emotions, whatever they are, uh, know your strengths, know your weakness, hire people that offset your personality. That was so great about Eric Kellum. He was calm, didn't get upset. Where I was, I half the time, you know, I half the time I'm, I was whizzed off. You know, I, I, get, I get upset like that. You know, that's why I was a defensive player. I mean, I played both ways in high school and junior college. But in college, they just change rules. So you build on what you, on your strength, circumvent yourself with weakness, your weaknesses with knowledge and the strength of others around you. And Eric was great for me, great coach. And he re, it really helped. And when I was at Moreau, I hired a guy named the late Jim Ingram, who had been a heck of a coach at Washington High School, right down the street from where I lived in Fremont. And for some reason, he taught that it was teaching still, but didn't coach. Well, he was 50 years old. You, everybody talks about recovery. We're in four days. So the third day of four days, they're coming on the field. And Jim says, look the way they're moving now. I said, yeah, they're putting one foot in front of the other. He said, no, they're stiff. If we practice, go after today, we're going to get hurt. So we took all the pads off, went through everything we could without pads. Kids loosened up, went on the next three practices and no problems. Now, we didn't always hit a lot. But that was experience. I was... At all, you know, I didn't have that experience. So don't be afraid to hire someone that knows something you don't. My brother Dick said when he hired the, the great Sid Gilman, he said he wanted to hire people that knew something he didn't. And Jim was a great, and I had a bunch of great assistants at Moreau, but they were all my age. And experience is the greatest teacher. And the thing I look back at my career and, oh man, why didn't I realize that? what I'm going you you gain all the knowledge and now you're done with it and I wouldn't want to go back because I don't have the energy and all that to do what they would do today but I don't know if, if that's what people want to hear they probably I don't know I will I will give them whatever they want and I can I will tell them the truth I will not make up fantasy stories I'll you know and I don't know everything no one does I appreciate that, Coach. I don't know if, that, that, you, I don't know if any of that helps. 100%, man. And I think that that's spot on. And I think that that's something that's really a breath of fresh air. Someone that's just going to call a spade a spade and give you what really has happened and what they've learned and how they've grown. You know, this has been a great hour and a half, Coach. I really appreciate your time and everything. And I'm really, well, I, it's, really it, excited to well, have you down here in July. When I go to talk, I ask one thing. If we have to go overtime, let me. Of course. I, I like to play into that fourth quarter, Coach. We had a thing in the row. I, had, I got from Vince Gibson that fourth quarter. Now, let me tell you a story about the fourth quarter. Young man that played linebacker for me. His name was Doug Foxworthy. He's dying of cancer. It's 2010. And I want to see him before he passes. So I go to see him. 
laying in his hospital bed. And uh, the people that take care of you at the end of your life, hospice comes in. So I leave and he's busy talking and I have to leave. And I looked in at him. I said, fourth quarter, Doug. Now here's a kid that doesn't have a lot of time. He goes, fourth quarter, coach. That's what coaching's about. It's about relationships with people. I love those kids. Truly. Now, that sounds corny. My brother Dick said it better. Yeah, I, he needed a word that was stronger than respect. I love the effort, their commitment. Not because they were young and idealistic and I'm their coach. I love them for the human beings, the effort. And my approach to coaching was to make it a little difficult on the team, make the team the most important. But once you join the team, I'll work with you as an individual. But first, you have to make the commitment to the team. Today, it's all about me, which I hate about athletics. A guy makes a play, he's jumping all around. We have lost the essence of athletics. The essence, it was a team effort. It's not about individuals. Too much written about individuals. They're all, you know, this guy's the greatest quarterback. Well, how about that offensive line you had? How about those receivers? How about that coach? How about the ownership? Too much. It's unfortunately, it's the way in everything. But those are the kind of young men. I had to tell you another great story. I told you I screwed up the 76 team. Owe them an apology. I can't say enough. Sorry, I'm not. It's like the young man I had a run in with. I didn't have a run in with. I mishandled off the 75 team. He knows who he is because I apologized to him when they were inducted in the Hall of Fame. In 1976, we're one and four before we leave. We end up going five and five. After the last game, we played in the mud. I'm turning the lights out in the locker room. Everybody showered. And this young man, Mike Leiden, sitting by his locker, still got his uniform on. And I walk over to him and I say, Mike, you got to take the uniforms, get charred. He said, coach, I don't want to, I don't want it to be over because that was his last game. That's what coaching, that's what it's really about. It's not winning and losing. Winning is really important. Nothing good comes from losing consistently. But winning is, it, it's, it's about the human beings, about what you can impart, uh, hopefully impart the right things to human beings for those young people to strive on to be something greater. I don't care if you've won 10 Super Bowls or 10 NBA championships. If you haven't coached at the high school level, you've missed the greatest thing in coaching. People ask me, which championship is more important? The Bulls or 49ers? I said, neither. Moreau High School. And the one championship I screwed up at Casa Robley, we should have won the freshman championship. But again, we'd ran the ball and I didn't throw it. I had a kid that could throw. So finally, we ended up getting beat. That's the one we had the 96-yard drive. And took the, but my point being, those are the things. And the accumulation or the culmination of that whole thing, when they built the new field, they named it after me because my players insisted. And when I was told that, I said, can you make it Al Vermeil Field and his boys? And they couldn't do it. My boys. They were my boys then. They'll be my boys forever. Because they, they were special. 
it was a special time in my life. I had my children and I got to coach high school football. And that's all I ever wanted to be was a high school football coach. I love that age group. There's nothing better than it. And if you, and you say, well, you're, you know, well, now you've done those other things. It's easy to say that. No, if all I ever, if I, if, if the good Lord willing, if there is a hereafter and he says, you got one job to do one job, you pick it. It'd be coaching Merle high school for eternity. And, you know, because every year was new year and every few years for the kids, lucky for them, they graduate and you get a new group. And hopefully you don't screw it up as much as you did the one before. But I don't know. That's what the people can expect to hear from me. I'm not going to tell them. There's no, and they're not going to come away with some big secret. And I'll leave you with this. If you want to know how good you are at coaching, look at the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror. If you can live with that person, you're all right. But when you look in the mirror, you can't hide that. You can hide everybody from everybody else, but you can't hide from that person. And you need to do that. I even do it now. Once in a while, I look in that mirror and say, you know, I'm not doing what I should be doing. I hope that was helpful to you, Coach. Coach, that's awesome. I really appreciate your time, and I'm stoked to get you down here in July. Uh, thank well, you thank so much. You, thank you for having me. And I, I, I and to you, to the listeners and viewers, uh, I appreciate your patience if you listen to all this, because I know I tend to get off topic and I ramble, but uh, that's just who I am. And I, you know, I am who I am, and that's the way the way it is. You know, and I think being 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 real, who you are. And don't try to be anybody else. Don't copy anybody else's style and be as happy as you can in your own skin, but realizing you can be a little better each day if that's possible. 100%, Coach. Coach, Thank appreciate you, your coach. time. We'll be in touch real soon. This is awesome. Thank you.